Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to the show today, I want to let you know about the big changes here on our team. We've now got six editors in both Asia and Africa producing some great journalism every day on what the Chinese are doing throughout the developing world. No one provides this kind of daily coverage about the Global South from the Global South. And that's why governments, think tanks, and investors around the world read our newsletter every day and rely on our website. If you'd like to find out what they're reading and get a truly unique perspective on China and the world, subscribe today. Subscriptions are super affordable and you get 30 days free just to try it out. So go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by our very own managing editor, Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good evening to you, Kobus. Good evening. And also joining us today, as per usual, when we do these lightning round episodes, francophone editor, Jeronima. Bonsoir, Jero. Bonsoir, Eric. Good evening, Kobus. Well, it is great to have both of you on this evening. We decided to do a lightning round episode this week simply because there was way too much going on that we have to compress all of the news into a single show. So anytime we want to get a lot covered, I invite both of these guys back to the show. Very excited to have you both on. We're going to do three topics today. So first, we're going to talk about how China mobilized its friends and partners throughout the Global South, including in Africa, for what turned out to be a massive coordinated campaign to denounce Nancy Pelosi's visit this week to Taiwan. It was an impressive strategic media communications deployment. We'll look at the tactics that they used and some of the motivations behind it and whether or not it was effective. Then we're going to talk about U.S.-China-Africa relations. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his way back to Africa next week for his second official visit to the continent. They're also going to be unveiling their new Africa strategy, and we'll dive into that. And then we'll look at two very important deals for battery metals from both Ford and Tesla and what they say about the battle for control of strategic resources to power the green economy. Okay, guys, let's first start with Taiwan. Nancy Pelosi spent 19 hours this week in Taiwan and sparked what many are describing as the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. We're not going to get into all the details about the visit because basically everybody else is talking about that. But what was interesting for us was how China responded, particularly in the global south. Over a 48-hour period this week, Chinese embassies around the world, especially in Africa, Asia, and Latin America mobilized a coordinated strategic communications push across three different fronts. There was a public diplomacy surge where diplomatic missions deployed a coordinated messaging campaign on social media and in digital outlets. There was outreach to local newspapers and media channels in different markets that generated huge amounts of earned media coverage. And there was also a coordinated push by state media outlets using influencers, academics, and politicians, and even some diplomats, which we'll get into, from friendly countries in what can only be described 
as a massive propaganda push. Kobus, you covered this in the newsletter this week. Lay out the Chinese communication strategy on Taiwan, what they did, and whether or not you thought it was effective. It's a very interesting thing to watch. When, when anything happens in relation to Taiwan, the volume coming from China goes up to 11. In this case, what was what was revealing to me was, as you said, this this very strong global South focus. It made me realize that we saw during the the Ukraine crisis, where China was was really leaning into relationships with the global South that it's it has been building for a long time, and using that as a as a kind of a, a way to to shape its messaging. That seems to now be its foreign policy playbook. Even though the Taiwan issue itself is mostly between the U.S. and China, and Taiwan, of course, and then you know it's it's a it's a Northeast Asian specific issue, but they very much made it a global South issue. You know it, what was startling was was when our, our, our colleagues who you know who, who look at the Chinese language media, when they started putting together all of the different countries where all of this messaging was happening, it was really a lot to see. You know, kind of The list was stunning. Page I mean, after was, page. That's yeah. right. It, that, that's what took me by surprise with the breadth of it. Uh, from Brazil to Argentina to Central Asia, multiple countries in Africa. And, and it really did show in many ways how a lot of countries took China's side in this. And this is what's so interesting is that developing countries have said for a long time in the emerging great power rivalry the new Cold War, as some would call it. We don't want to be caught in the middle. But Cobus, this was them taking the side in an extraordinarily contentious issue where they put themselves right in the middle. Yeah, where they, you know, kind of, like on, on the one hand, like they don't want to be caught in the middle. On the other hand, Taiwan is far away from most of these countries, you know, so so it's it's in a kind of no skin of their noses to, to, to you know, kind of to, to, to side with China in this particular issue because they don't have large Taiwanese interests anyway, but also because China makes these red lines so clear, you know, so, so, you know, kind of, you, you know what you're trying to avoid mostly, you know, which is a fight with China. Um, whereas, like, kind of siding with Taiwan on this particular issue doesn't particularly win these global South countries anything specific. So, you know, so, so it's a relatively easy choice, I think, for them to make. But what it does reflect is, is the effectiveness of this kind of red line messaging coming from China and also just the, the power of China and the world. You know, kind of what another thing that we were covering this, this uh, on the same day, actually, was, was the emergence of China as, a, kind of, as a, a very prominent and in lots of ways very problematic kind of lender to countries that are facing liquidity issues. And the point that I was making is the combination of these two, the fact that China is A, so clear on what it gets angry about, and then gets super angry when you cross those lines, together with with China's emerging role as this kind of like IMF-like kind of bailout lender, is th that combination that makes it a, a tough opponent to the global south, you know, kind of because, the, because these, these countries are very clear about where their economic interests lie, and they're very clear about what China wants and what they don't want. So, so it's a relatively easy choice for them. Um, you know, and, and you, yeah, you know, kind of challenging that and, and by, by, by kind of like appealing to human rights and the sovereignty of states and, and so on, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty weak counter message, actually. Well, you were following this, Giro, in the DRC and looking at how the DRC's ambassador in Beijing 
how he responded and how other African countries responded to what happened in Taiwan. Let's get your take on this. Yes. Um, getting back to what Kobe said me, I was just, I had one question. Why they, they could they could have kept silent. They could have just said nothing, just like they did about Ukraine. In the Ukraine crisis, they all, some of them voted against Russia. Some of them just kept abstained. They didn't vote anything. They, on the two votes, they didn't abstain. In these cases, they could also just kept silent and do nothing. But what was surprising, they just clearly went out there um, supporting China, using all the language that China has been using, sovereignty and everything in that context and putting it, putting it forward. And for me, it was quite disturbing because I was like, those countries now, they can act in the state of the relationship they have with China, in the state how the situation is right now, where nobody's basically asking them anything, they could have just kept quiet, especially for African countries. They could have kept quiet and continue to play the same neutrality they've been displaying on the Ukraine crisis. But in this case, they went all the way condemning the U.S. and the Congolese ambassador even talked about uh, interference in internal uh, in the internal affairs of China. That's not admissible and in, in everything. And that for me was really surprising. I was I wrote a piece about that, and I think our readers in French can can see that. But it was really it's quite surprising because. The situation they didn't really have, they had the option to keep quiet. Yeah, but why would they keep quiet? In one sense, this is an easy win for them because they don't suffer any downside from the United States. The United States is different than China. It does not come back and retaliate if you cross one of its so-called red lines or a sensitive issue for the Americans. So in this case, it's an easy win, right? You get to placate the Chinese, make them happy on an issue that's important to them. You have no domestic political constituency, say, in the Congo or in Brazil or elsewhere that has a strong feeling on Taiwan, as Kobus said. It's an issue that's far away. So why not? Take the win. It's just because what you've mentioned earlier, the fact that we can play that neutrality by being, you know, we are not aligned between this great power rivalry. We don't want to play that game. We don't want, it's not because China is investing in our countries that we're going to be those who are going to back it at every time when he has a problem with Taiwan. No, this is our position. This is where we stand. We stand free by making our choice to decide whether or not we can express our voices. And this is even because at this stage of the crisis, there's no war per se. There's no real crisis. There's no invasion of Taiwan or anything. They could have, as I say, for me, they could have just kept quiet and China would have, eh, China would have been displaced at some point, but not going to retaliate just because a country like Guinea or Congo, even Brazil did not say anything about what Pelosi did in Taiwan. Okay. So Kobus, let's bring that point up to you because again, we've heard over and over again in all of the Global South regions, especially in Africa and Southeast Asia that have very painful memories of the last Cold War, how they've said with a lot of passion that they don't want to be sucked into the middle of the next Cold War. So to Giraud's point here, if they don't want to be sucked into it, then they need to be ideologically consistent and they need to sit out on these kinds of things, even if it's politically expedient to support China. Because at the end of the day, now the Americans have some room to say, well, listen, you say you don't want to be sucked in, but when the Chinese came knocking on your door, you took a stand on an issue that was important to us and at the same time was very much pro-Chinese. 
So if you don't want to take a stand, then don't take a stand. Uh, Eric, allow, allow me to say something even before Kobe said something. Last week, two weeks ago, French President President Macron was in, was in Africa. And during his trip, he mentioned the fact that there is a kind of hypocrisy among African leaders who say that they don't want to, they don't want to, call, they don't, they don't want to call out the Ukraine war. They don't want to get involved. And this has even come back to what you said now. At, that, at this time, he, 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 will, he, he will be saying that again. You see, guys, you are taking side on these cases, but when it was Ukraine, they didn't say anything. So they will really use that African countries and developing countries have been hypocritical about Ukraine war. I think there's another aspect of, of this reaction, I think, is that the visit in lots of ways came off as a little frivolous. Like both, both frivolous and reckless at the same time. You know, kind of in the sense that you know, like I, I, you know, I absolutely don't want to diminish the the, the seriousness of you know, kind of of this the situation and the and and you know, kind of the complexity of the Taiwanese position. However, like it was just a little bit like you know, I, I keep wondering what's the end game here and why now specifically and why you know why making this why make this extremely you know I think risky gesture without. A, a clear through line, you know, kind of all without being prompted by a specific trigger or, you know, it, it, it just raises so many questions. Um, and so then, you know, kind of it also puts these countries in a, in a position where, unlike the Ukraine thing, there isn't this kind of like stark kind of moral choice where you kind of fall on the one side or the other, you know, kind of you, it, I think it's easier to take the Chinese side in this, in this particular moment. Well, that depends, Kobus. That depends if you buy into the whole democracy versus autocracy framing. Exactly. That the yeah, but, what, but, I, but more specifically, like maybe I should be more exact. What I mean is there wasn't a particular kind of Deadline, or as Giroud said, there wasn't an invasion. There wasn't. There was no direct threat against Taiwan that that Pelosi was was intervening in. You know, so it it was a kind of a crisis of Nancy Pelosi's own making. Um, you know, kind of without without an external kind of objective objective trigger that 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 needed to be responded to. Unlike the Ukraine crisis in Ukraine, there was a, an an actual invasion that people were, were were responding to. In this case, it could have happened now. It could have happened six months from now. It, that doesn't really make a big difference. So in that sense, I think it makes it easier to side with China because it seems like a, a kind of a crisis that was largely kind of engineered by by internal dynamics within within American politics rather than by any kind of specific thing between Taiwan and China. Well, let's quickly shift gears before we move on to our next topic. There was a very interesting statement that came from Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi while he was in Phnom Penh, where ASEAN foreign ministers are meeting. And also, by the way, Anthony Blinken is going to be there. The Japanese foreign minister is going to be there. A number of the heavy hitters are going to be in the Cambodian capital for the uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations Foreign Ministers Conference. Now, on the sidelines of this, Chinese state media asked him to comment on Pelosi's visit. And he was responding in the context of the United States. But there was one part of his response that caught my attention. And we wrote about this this week as well. He said, quote, those who offend China will be punished. And that sparked a very interesting conversation on Twitter about the implications in developing countries about whether or not it's worthwhile or risky to take a stand on what I call the, wait for this, this is my acronym, 4THKXJS. C, okay? <laughs> and it's getting longer. These are the red lines. So here's my acronym. 
Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen, the party, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, South China Sea, and now COVID. I think you could probably put Huawei in there as a red line issue as well. So African foreign ministries, they should, they probably don't, but they should have that acronym posted up on their wall. They look up and they say, is this a 4THK XJS issue? Mm, okay, if it's not, you know, we'll go. And then here's also my corollary to my 4THK XJS, which is the Jay-Z rule of foreign policy. The Jay-Z rule of foreign policy states, and I've said this many times and, and readers of our newsletter may be getting bored of me talking about this, but the Jay-Z rule of foreign policy states that I've got 99 problems and Taiwan, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, they're not one of them. <laughs> so to Kobus's point, you know what? Why not? Let's give an easy win to the Chinese because, well, we're not going to suffer any backlash from anybody else. But the key here is those who offend China will be punished. We have lots of examples of this. Lithuania, Australia, Sweden. Let's go down the list of countries who have crossed these red lines and have paid harsh prices. So if you are sitting in the capitals of any of these Global South countries, Malawi, even South Africa, and you see what the Chinese have done to Australia by sanctioning huge parts of their imports, by really just unleashing just a fervor, a passionate fervor of invective, and you say, you know what? I don't need that, okay? So, Giro, let's go to you first. Those who offend China will be punished. How did you interpret that? And how do you think policymakers in places like Africa interpret something like that? Uh, in places in Africa, when China say that, of course, they'll be worried because, you know, they depend a lot on what China is doing in terms of investment, in terms of investment in infrastructure, in terms of investment in mining sector. But it's triggered me, and, and I even made a comment about it. I was wondering, now that you're speaking about it, you've mentioned Australia. We have we know how China is struggling with Australia over the iron ore in Australia. Not just an iron ore, barley, wheat, yes, meat, wine. I mean, the list of things that have been sanctioned by the Chinese is very long in Australia. Is is very long. And then you have a country like Guinea, where China is seeking to find something in Simandu to balance this iron with Australia. You have a country like the DRC, which the, which ambassador made a comment about the Taiwan cases. Those countries, though they were less powerful comparing those big countries, I do believe that somehow they have a certain level of leverage right now. Because I've tried just to imagine... If today the DRC government or Guinea government say nothing about what happened in Taiwan, what could China do? Leave, leave DRC? Leave the mining sector? Leave cobalt? Leave Simandu project? I don't think they would say something. I don't think they'll, they'll be pissed. They won't be happy. But the context in the international, in the international context they're finding themselves in gives now a certain leverage to a certain number of countries in the global south, especially in Africa, to give to give them a certain leeway to say, nah, I'm not gonna say anything. I'm gonna keep quiet. I know how I can play my game here. That's why for me I was quite surprised when the DRC ambassador went on that. But hold on, Joe, the issue is not keeping quiet, the issue is taking a stand against China. That is, or on these red lines. That is, if Guinea said, you know what, we're going to welcome the Dalai Lama to come for a visit. I know, they cannot do that. Or they're going to, you know, support the COVID origin investigation that Australia wants to do. Or they're going to vote with the Americans on the South China Sea. These are the issues that I'm talking about. Of, Active of participation course. against issues that China thinks are important. Not staying quiet. How do you think then Guinea would be treated by the Chinese or... 
No, of course they will not do that. They will not cross those lines. They are not crazy enough to cross those lines. I do, I do believe that those leaders they know how China can can retaliate economically because how much we know how much those countries depend on the uh, foreign investment coming from China. They will not try. They will not dare crossing the red lines that China established on these issues. Kobus, let's get your take in on this. You know, the, the the one kind of like I think reality of all of this is that you know, like I might need a, a different acronym just to remember your acronym. But the um, but you know the the thing is those red lines are are very clear. You know that the, the Chinese are uh, there's a limited list of them, and the Chinese are are very explicit about about what what kind of like action they want, and a lot of those. A lot of those issues are relatively far away from African countries, but I think the other issue is also is that not only African countries but a lot of global South countries just don't take these kind of big big kind of foreign policy positions anyway. You know, it's like only some kind of global South countries. You know, you have certain kind of global South countries who have ambitions to kind of punch above their weight and kind of play some of these international roles. South Africa is a, is a big one. Um, you know, so South Africans, South African leaders would, you know, kind of say that they're willing to to mediate in the in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example. And then, you know, and then the only kind of realistic <laughs> response to that is actually, you know, settle down. Um, the, you know, so, so there, there is this kind of like aspect where it, it kind of isn't the place of these countries to, you know, to, for example, take a stand on South China Sea if they're not the Philippines who happen to be there, you know. Like so, so for for Guinea or Malawi or whatever to to like suddenly weigh in on on the South China Sea issue, you know that that's kind of not not their wheelhouse, you know. So so I think yeah. So so I think in a lot of cases, like a, a lot of it is also a, re, uh, a kind of a reflection of the structural exclusion from the kind of global decision making that is a part of being a global South country. Um, you know, where in theory you have a voice in the UN, but in reality, you're, you know, kind of it doesn't really matter. And so why pick that fight? You know, kind of um, it's so, so, so I think in a lot of ways, the, the difference, I think, and, and, and there I think this, this kind of, um, kind of diplomatic outreach that China is doing in, around these issues that, that, that we mentioned earlier actually is interesting in that respect in the sense that China is pulling all these global South countries into a debate where they usually don't have a place. You know, kind of the, it's, the US isn't like kind of like ang anxiously waiting to hear, you know, kind of what what Liberia thinks about its foreign policy, right? Um, yeah, but the US does want Liberia to sign up to its letters on Xinjiang. Yeah, they do, you know, kind of in the same way that China kind of wants this the, this kind of support in, in, in these global, in, in these kind of multilateral multilateral forums. But the U.S. doesn't doesn't do the kind of like, you know, kind of like fine-grained kind of assiduous kind of diplomatic follow-up the way that, that the Chinese do, you know. They don't send, you know, kind of like similar the way that, that Wang Yi is visiting every single global South country at some stage in his life. Um, you know, so 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 I, I guess the difference is there. Like it's like the you know the that being pulled into the conversation is I think a new experience for these countries. And when they when they are kind of pulled in, they they tend to want to play it safe. You know, kind of particularly around China. So I highly recommend that you take a look at Kobus's rap that he did on. The what the Chinese did over the past week, and again in this particular 48-hour period for mobilizing this messaging against the Pelosi visit, it was an impressive display. And again, 
please don't misunderstand me. When I say this is impressive and that it was absolutely fascinating to watch, it's not an endorsement of what they what the content is. It was just that you don't see governments that organized that often, you know, across continents to have a synthesized message. This is not something that the United States can do. I've not seen a European government do it. And so that's what makes this so interesting in the public diplomacy realm. And so I highly recommend you take a look at that. Uh, We also are publishing the list that one of our researchers put together of all the different media from that, uh, that they found in South America, in the Middle East, in Africa, supporting the Chinese position on that. So again, just a very interesting propaganda slash public diplomacy outreach initiative. Let's continue our discussion now talking about the U.S. in Africa. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on a nine-day tour right now of Asia and Africa that began in Cambodia, where he's attending the ASEAN Foreign Ministers meeting. Incidentally, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, he's also there, as we mentioned, where he gave those those comments on Taiwan, but the two are not going to meet, which is really not a big surprise given all that is going on right now. Sorry to interrupt. He also cancelled a, like a, a already scheduled meeting with with the Japanese foreign minister. So you know, so so it's it just like the the fallout from the Pelosi visit means that all of this other diplomacy is dead now. That's exactly. right. So that was between the Japanese foreign minister and the Chinese foreign minister. That was cancelled because of a G seven statement supporting. Of the Pelosi visit. So Wang Yi bailed on that. The ramifications of this are going to be felt for weeks, if not months, going forward. But after Cambodia, Blinken is going to then head to the Philippines for talks with the new president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. And then for us, in our discussion here today, he heads back to Africa for the second time. He's going to go to three countries, South Africa, Rwanda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. What's been interesting, Giraud, is that in the coverage leading up to the Africa portion of the trip, all of the talking points coming out of the State Department and in the media coverage itself seem to be focusing more on Russia than China. Now, this is a very unusual phenomenon, given that pretty much every Secretary of State visit to Africa for the past, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 years has always had a China cloud hanging over it. But it appears that Washington was so rattled by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's recent tour in Africa that they want to get Blinken back there to counter what they perceive as Moscow's charm offensive. Guys, two other very quick points on this issue before we dive in. As I mentioned at the top of the show, next week in South Africa, the United States is going to unveil its new strategy for Africa that will apparently not focus on China anywhere near as much as what the Trump administration did in their Prosper Africa policy. Remember when they announced the Prosper Africa policy at the Heritage Foundation? uh, John Bolton said the word China 14 times. (laughs) So we've been told that the new policy will not have anywhere near as much China in it. And then we also need to get your takes on LTG. Linda Thomas Greenfield, United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Let me just read you a quote, and then I'm going to drop this off with you guys. She was pushing back on the narrative that the United States is playing catch-up to both Russia and China in Africa. She said, quote, we're not catching up, they're catching up. (laughs) Okay? And then, here's the doozy. Here is the doozy. Kobus, all of you and your academics... And all the hard work you've been doing for the past 10 years, worthless. Yes. <laughs> As you look at what China is doing in Africa, you need to look and wait for it, guys. You need to look at the debt trap that African countries, many of them have faced because of those relationships with China. 
There it is. The debt trap. You know, the debt trap is dead. Long live the debt trap. (laughs) Okay. A lot to chew on there. Giraud, let's start with you. He is heading to your neck of the woods in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Rwanda as well. A lot of the talking points coming out of the State Department is focusing on the conflict between Rwanda and the DRC. China, again, not an issue. The press does want to make China an issue, as we saw in this Linda Thomas-Greenfield quote. No doubt they are pushing her to speak to that. LTG, by the way, will be accompanying the secretary, on the trip. Let's get your take on some of the issues that I laid out. Yes, uh, starting by Linda Greenfield, it's just, at some point, you just get tiring, you know. Having those kind of narrative coming back over and over just gets annoying and tiring because the information is out there, the data is out there, all the reports, all the research that people have been doing, it's out there. So it's, at some point, you have the feeling that it's just like, it's just a strategy they've used to push it forward. It's a narrative they've used in the, in the strategy that's going to be the way they're going to talk about China in Africa, and they we are and they, and they say we are not going to talk about it in other terms. That's going to be the only terms we are going to use when you talk about China in Africa. At the end, the narrative doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help African countries it, in terms of solution to find. It, it won't help anybody because at the end, it's just like you know, short solution based on fake uh, diagnosis and a wrong problem. They're solving a wrong problem instead of addressing the real problem by saying really what's happening and not what's on, and what's not happening and that's at some point you just say okay guys i don't know if you're looking for a solution and you want to find a real solution to the problem or you just want to keep on saying you know china is a bad china is bad dead threat and everything and as I, as I said it a few days earlier china is not going anywhere it's gonna be there so we we might find now the way to work with it in a much more productive way instead of just throwing narrative that baseless narrative that really doesn't help anybody in uh in in the longer run okay talk to us a little bit about the drc in specific he's going to be going to kinshasa what do you think he's going to be talking about they haven't talked about mining which is very interesting in strategic resources which i found to be odd because that has been a subcurrent in the U.S. discourse about the DRC is that the supply chains and securing the supply chains for strategic resources has been a major U.S. priority. But yet on this trip, there's no, there have not, there's been no mention of it, but you have to think that he's going to talk about it, right? Yes, we have to think they're going to talk about it. But the political situation right now in DRC between DRC and Rwanda is heating up in a way that I think you need to address the issues because now we have UN reports confirming that Rwanda has been supporting the rebels in the east of the DRC and the tension has has been mounting between the two countries. So at some point he had the feeling that he has to do something because the US is kind of of the one that's making sure that the political situation remains stable in the country and he him being there, it's quite. It's a certain way to come and say to calm the situation and to make the two countries fight, uh, finding a common ground. And this is where, when you look at, let me now put the China ingredient in the context. When you look how China is involved in the country in terms of economic, in terms of the way that is putting in the mining sector and the way U.S. has been has been kind of fighting China on it on DRC. You're quite surprised that China is not pulling a certain political weight to say, let's find the solution in the in this context. Last week, we had, uh, two weeks ago, we had Xi Jinping coming to DRC and Rwanda as well, but they did not put out a real good and strong statement 
addressing the issue on both sides. Xi Jinping talked about being those countries are friends and everything. We are standing by our friends. But when you stay, you go to Rwanda, you stay. We are standing by our friends. You go to DRC, we stand by our friends. At the end, you don't truly really come up with a solution. You just lay. Okay, I'm not going to talk about it. And this is where, in terms of political influence, this is where you uh, US will. Kind of always have a, a step ahead on the political situation in the DRC, and China will be only playing the economic fiddle. But at the end, it's going to be quite difficult for them to to play in that in in, in that board game. So Xu Jinghu is the special representative for African Affairs, a senior foreign ministry official. She has been on a tour of about eight African countries, ending in the Seychelles this week as well. Again, the Seychelles, very interesting choice of country that she ended on because it's in the Indian Ocean. We'll save that discussion for another day. But we love to talk about China's interest in the Indian Ocean because it's something that is endlessly fascinating. Uh, Blinken is also going to be going to South Africa. Kokobis, your neck of the woods. And he's going to be making his big policy unveil uh, that's been uh, highly covered in the media. This is something that's been highly anticipated for at least six months now, uh, that uh, we're going to see a new U.S. policy towards Africa that apparently is going to focus less on great power rivalry and more on the U.S. What are you expecting from Blinken in South Africa? And what do you think the China narratives will be? In the first place, it'll it'll in in relation to the DRC in Rwanda, it'll be very interesting to see whether Blinken takes a harder line than what what Giroud has outlined on China. You know, kind of whether because because obviously the US has, has has very kind of powerful you know interests in both those countries. So it'll be interesting to see whether whether he he says anything you know kind of about about that particular conflict. Just before we go on, just on that, remember that Rwanda. Has a there's a special resonance to Rwanda in the State Department and in the United States government. Yes. If you go back to 1995, Bill Clinton says the greatest regret of his presidency was that he didn't act to stop the genocide and did not intervene. I don't know if it haunts them, if it echoes, but there is that is still in the memory of a lot of people in Washington as to what happened in Rwanda. So there's this... Yeah, and, and Samantha Power, the current head of the USAID, is, of course, the, maybe the most prominent kind of advocate for... Yeah, yeah that's right. She's the architect of, of this kind of humanitarian intervention. So Rwanda does play a special a special role in, in all of this. And the fact that Rwanda is involved in this is makes it even more interesting. And let's not forget that the U.S. has been the, bro- the peace broker in the, in the Congolese war in, from nine, and, uh, in 1998 to nine, 2003. So U.S. is going to have to take a certain strong stand, stand in that issue to, uh, to find a way out. Otherwise, that trip in Rwanda and DRC would be just for nothing. So to your point... Giraud, you asked about the Chinese taking a role. One of the things that we saw coming out of the Horn of Africa peace conference, in my view, is how inexperienced the Chinese are in doing these types of conflict stabilization, peace conferences, and whatnot. Uh, to me, Xue Bing, is, who is the Horn of Africa representative, special envoy, is, you know, he's not in the major leagues. He's a newbie. He's just starting. He's learning his way. He's figuring out his way. I don't think they have the chops to do something as complex as this. And to Kobus's point, the United States has been mediating some of these conflicts for a long time. We've got experts. We've got people who know what they're doing. They've got trust. They've got relationships in these regions. And I guess, Kobus, my question to you is, 
Does the United States actually have any leverage, though? Because what can they do if everybody ignores them? They, they, they do have a lot of muscle on the continent, of course. You know, um, but what um, in, in you know in, in just in relation to kind of military infrastructure, for example. But um, you know that that has to be balanced with with the, the kind of appetite they have for 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 intervention, which I think has been has been waning, particularly in relation to Africa, all the way from from the from the Trump yeah, there's era. There's no to now. appetite. That's no, the last thing. Zero. I think. Yeah, there's no appetite for intervention. That's right. Yeah. That's so, so you know, kind of, it'll, it'll be interesting. And like, my, my my expectation is that they'll probably tactically avoid that kind of, a, you know, um, you know, getting getting too kind of stuck in that in that issue. But we'll have to see what that actually looks like. You know, kind of like what level of of involvement is is interesting for them. And what about the China piece of the Blinken visit and the policy? And again, is it interesting to you that? We haven't seen a stronger China theme in this visit as we have in previous secretary visits. I'm sure it comes up behind the scenes. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's a tactical it's a tactical decision to not mention it, you know, kind of in public. But I'm sure it's it's a, it's a key talking point behind the scenes. Um, and in the DRC, particularly, I think you know, kind of it, it fits into a much much kind of bigger kind of campaign or initiative over a long time to try and kind of you know kind of deal with with battery supply chain issues. Um, you know, particularly on the on the back of of of, the, of Biden's kind of explicit policy around those issues. So you know, so so I'm sure that will be a, a you know that will play a big a big role there. Um, in in relation to South Africa, I it, it will be very interesting to see what they mention. I expect electricity issues to be to be high on the agenda. You know, kind of particularly after the deal that South Africa made for a green transition. Uh, last year at, at at the COP meeting in in Glasgow, um, you know, and and this is this is politically a really ripe time for that in South Africa. You know, kind of everyone is ready for some kind of announcement of 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 some kind of cooperation on this issue. It's 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 a really big it's a big story, um, but. Well, you know, kind of, I was wondering, you know, so, so Eric, you, you spent you spent quite a lot of time over the last few weeks in, in Washington, D.C., um, and I was wondering kind of what, which way the wind was blowing in relation to the discussions around this, this Africa policy. I was expecting that, that they, they, seemed, they seemed to want to lean a lot more towards trying to build bridges between U.S. industry and African, African governments, but I was wondering what, like, like what you heard when you were there. Yeah, so the key theme that I heard with a number of different agencies and think tanks and the people that we were talking to about this was more about how the United States needs to express an affirmative policy and not be reactive to the Chinese and now increasingly the Russians. So this is about accentuating what the United States already does. There's a deep sense of frustration in many parts of Washington that the United States contributions to, say, for example, African health are not appreciated that the United States spends more than any other country in the world, probably most countries combined. And yet there's this sense, again, that Linda Thomas-Greenfield is on the defense saying, we're not catching up, they're catching up, to a point she's right. The United States is deeply engaged in security, in health, in trade, in lots of different areas, but yet the Chinese do capture a lot of the narratives. What we've talked about is that China's engagement in Africa in many ways is highly distorted. The bulk of its trade is concentrated in five countries. The bulk of its debt is concentrated in 10 countries. And so this is a very interesting point that the Chinese often get credit that they don't deserve, and the United States often doesn't get the credit that it does deserve. So I think what you're going to see in this policy 
is a much more affirmative effort about the United States. That is not to downplay the Chinese, but to say, this is what we do well. What I hope we'll see, which I doubt we'll see, is that there's going to be more focus on tech, on finance, on capital formation, on the things that the United States does better than almost anyone else in the world. We don't do infrastructure well. We don't do development finance well. Those aren't our things. That's just not who we are. We're not even a trading power in that sense. We buy a lot from other countries, but we don't sell a lot because we're a services-based economy. So we should be promoting our services. We should have legions of McKinsey-like consultants going out across the continent, working with governments, working with companies to help them become stronger in their economic development, to inspire through jobs and technology. I don't think we're going to do that. That's what we should do. But everybody talked about an affirmative policy rather than a defensive reactive policy. So let's see what comes out of it. I'm not entirely sure. We will see. The consultancy side of that particular story is not going to play happily in South Africa because because of the, the, the involvement of these very prominent uh Consultancies, including a certain one that you just mentioned, in in like the, this kind of misinformation that that and and like kind of complications that 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 define that essentially ruined South Africa's economy over the last ten years because of because of corruption through the Zuma era. Fair enough. To, just to prove the point, though, that in South Africa, KPMG, Baker McKenzie, I mean, America's largest consultancies are very active there. Mm -hmm. I mean, South Africa, in many ways, is the poster child yes. for this. Yes. And when I say McKinsey. I'm not meaning McKinsey literally. I'm meaning the idea that we have strong management consultancy. We have strong tech consultancy. A lot of the things that Africa needs in terms of the the human software, for example. Yeah, but but that uh, that's but that, something that we do very well. But that is the that that it will be how South Africa pushes back on that narrative because they will say, and I think with a certain amount of of you know to a certain extent correctly, that all of these massive massive companies have a very strong multi-decade presence in South Africa, and they use that presence to ruin South Africa rather than to help it um you know and 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 I, so, so i think you know but but in, like i i take your point and, and of course of course you know kind of like these you know these services are, are very needed in in africa i i guess you know kind of the 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 one, the one, you know, so, so I, I, you know, in, in the point that you made about the, this complaint that that the U.S.'s kind of contribution to health is, you know, isn't valued, I, I, I see their point. I guess the um, one of the reasons for that, I think, is that the the focus, of the, the core focuses of of the U.S. in in this particular field, you know, health democratization, uh, you know, kind of boosting civil liberties, you know, boosting women. All of those are to a certain extent intangible, you know. So, you know, kind of putting a bridge down, you know, kind of is, it's just so much easier to point to, you know. Yeah, but, but that's kind of, I don't know, I, I'm going to push back on you on that one. That's kind of a BS line because you have 10 million South Africans that are alive today because of PEPFAR. Yeah. That is tangible. That it's, is it's, tangible. It's tangible, but at the same time, it's 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 tangible. But I'm, I'm it, it connects to my my second point, which is that it, to a large extent, the one the one thing that I think that that the Chinese really get right is that they very cannily, I think, play into African dreams of the future. Like a lot of a lot of this a lot of the stuff that they provide is very like future oriented, right? Whereas health is as incredibly valuable as it is, is to a certain extent, you know, when, when, when a healthcare system works well, 
um, then you don't see it, right? Kind of, it, 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 you know, kind of, it, it's um, the, it, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not only that it's less tangible, but it's also, it's, it conserves things rather than putting something new on the landscape. Man, um, I know that our listeners from USAID right now are fuming when when they hear you say this. And this is not absolutely this is absolutely not to to diminish this involvement, you know, kind of in in you know like HIV is you know and and PEPFAR is by far like is one of the largest kind of like human rights and human well-being victories in the history of the continent, right? But but no one says that though. You you've literally just said that, but nobody else ever says that, and that's what their point is. That it is exactly that. Yes, but there's a second half to that point, which they never want to hear, which is that that you know kind of that that this particular kind of focus on health and putting putting this kind of health issue right at the center of the engagement puts Africans in a weird position because the one thing that people don't like to hear is, remember, we're keeping you alive. If it weren't for us, you'd be dead. You know, no one wants to hear that, even when it's true that I don't want to hear it. I understand that. But I just want to bring up one final point that this was put on full display when Samantha Power, she called out the Chinese for not doing enough to help the food crisis in the Horn of Africa. And she said that the United States is committing, I think, don't quote me on this, I think it's around a billion dollars. And China then turned around and said, well, we've sent deliveries, but refusing to specify how much they've sent. So this is an example of where the United States is providing a disproportionate contribution to any other country in the world compared to the French, the Germans, anybody else. And yet, it's the Chinese who are seen as the country of the future. So again, I understand the American frustration here that they feel they're they're providing the stuff that nobody pays attention to. It may not be sexy. It may not be Huawei and 5G and, and all the cool stuff, but it's keeping millions of people alive. For me, it's like, I get what you, I, I get what you say and you really, you're totally right on the point that you're making and I will understand the frustration. And for me, it's just about to make that small comment. Yes, they're providing health, health, um, health medication and every, every kind of programs um, to African countries. I'm going to take for some country, some country in Central Africa where people are going to tell you, yes, they're providing health and health supports to hospitals that are built with Chinese money. You see, they're going to say, you know, those medication, those programs and everything, they work, but they cannot work without hospitals. And those hospitals in those small villages, in small places are built by Chinese. And at the end, this is where it's going to, this is where, this is where people are going to join what Kobe said. People won't, will not see the software, you know, they will not see the software that are those, those medication. They will not always see the, you know, the training, the personal training, the, all, all the thing that, that comes with the U.S. Uh, medication support but they will only see the building because that's something that they've so they've seen you know built from ground up and they see that rising and they say okay this is our place this is and when they see the medication they will just connect the who build the who build the hospital is the one who also gave the medication at the end they're gonna say is the chinese it goes back to the point that we talked about at the beginning of the show in terms of the importance of strategic communications 
that the United States is absolutely terrible and abysmal at communicating its contributions. There's no doubt. Again, I don't want to paint the United States as, as the all, you know, everything is great, what they do in Africa. But when it comes to a lot of their contributions, I don't think they get the credit for it. And in part, they're not telling people about it, Giro, as you, you pointed out. And the Chinese get the credit for it, you know. And you're right. Let's quickly move on because time is running out because we're always wanting to try and make sure that our shows stay under an hour. I don't know if it's going to be possible today to do that, but let's give it a try. Very quickly, gentlemen, this falls in both of your wheelhouses. Tesla signed agreements with Zhejiang Huayou Cobalt and CNGR Advanced Material Company. Now, this deal with Tesla for battery metals comes just about two weeks after Ford made a similar deal with Chinese battery giant CATL. Kobus, you wrote a column for foreign policy on this issue. Jeho, this is this is what you do every single day. Let's talk about the United States can say all it wants about trying to reshore its supply chain, trying to get the Chinese out of the strategic resources supply chain, trying to ensure that Americans are autonomous in their ability to power next generation mobility and electronics. But at the end of the day, the politics don't seem to matter. Whatever the politicians in Washington say, Ford and Tesla are going to do what's in the interest of their shareholders. Let me drop this off with you, Kobus. Yeah, you know, it's like it like the it, it's very interesting for me to see how the U.S. government and U.S. companies are pulling in different directions. Um, and you know, I've I've heard this in speaking with American diplomats as well, saying that one of one of the key challenges in in you know kind of in dealing with this this Chinese dominance of of battery metal supply chains in the DRC is that their own companies, that American companies, are very hesitant about doing business there. And it's and you know there, there's they the government has very little leverage over these companies. It's not like in a China situation where they have no leverage over these companies. Yeah, none. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing like the, the kind of like going out strategy where essentially the party would set a, a line and then the, the companies would follow and find their own ways of following. Um, you know, so so this is going to be. You know, like one thing I think that that it makes clear is that um, is that no matter what what is being said by both the Chinese and the U.S. governments, the actual decoupling of the U.S. and Chinese economies are very far away, and um, you know, and 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 the DRC I think is is an interesting kind of like sub point in, in you know kind of in that in that wider issue. Um, Giro, like like were you surprised by these by these deals at all? I'm not surprised at all. It's something that we've been talking and covering um, since like. Few, few months ago already we've been following that and I'm just here I'm going to quote what's the former US ambassador in, Z in Zambia to 2014 to 2017, Eric Schultz said a few weeks ago in front of the US, a US committee Congress by saying, as long as the US government will not be willing to provide money to US companies to be able to, 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 to compete with the Chinese, with Chinese company in, in that sector, they will not be able to do anything. And that himself as former ambassador to Zambia, where we've seen a lot of Chinese presence from the Zambian DRC, if he comes to that conclusion, that's a fact. That's a fact that, yes, it was, it's not really surprising. It's when you see, uh, the, when you see the story on how Chinese companies have, have, have acquired U.S. Um, US um, assets on, in the continent, even the biggest U.S. asset in the continent, the TFM project, in the DRC and elsewhere in uh, Global South, and all the and other Western countries, you just see that Chinese China has that 
political leverage over companies and they also offer that economic backing, financial backing to the companies to be able to really compete. And that's what not the US is doing and that's really unfortunate in that context. China has the political advantage to be able to manage those unstable environment. He has the economic power to provide the financial mean and the security mean to for for the insurance for the investment for the company overseas. At the end, that they they seems they seem they look like those who are really willing to win the game and they're really putting the the money where the the, the where the game is. That's not I, what I the am, US. Is I'm a little doing. surprised, Joe, that you quoted. Uh, that ambassador so so favorably because you and I were watching that testimony <laughs> thinking what a bonehead this guy is and the exactly. fact that he he was in Zambia and I mean the stuff that he was saying before that committee was just kind of like crazy I mean just ridiculously stupid so so exactly like you you picked the one piece of uh, of his of his testimony that was uh, that was remotely accurate you know so exactly. I, 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 I exactly. thought that was interesting you know what i wrote this week on these deals was how they validate the chinese strategy back in early 2004 2005 when they st- first started to explore the Sikomins deal in the DRC. And then they signed what was first a $9 billion deal. It got put down to $6 billion deal. What we have learned since then is that this deal was riddled with corruption, riddled with problems. But the vision for locking in control of these strategic minerals 20 years ago or 15 years ago uh, these deals, to me, validate that decision and that strategy, and it speaks to what they are doing right now all over again with lithium. You're seeing it happen right in front of your eyes. Every single week, we are tracking a new major lithium deal that the Chinese are doing, a billion-dollar deal in Argentina. There's a new deal in, in Zimbabwe with China, Zhejiang, Huayo, Cobalt, that they're trying to work through. Lithium deals are being snapped up all over at a pace which is remarkable, and I don't see the Western companies competing as ferociously as the Chinese are for lithium. Because, you know, we're going to get to a point where we're not going to need cobalt in cars anymore. I mean, yeah. they're already working very quickly to try and get cobalt out of the supply chain exactly. of cars. So the, yeah. the new battlegrounds are going to be nickel and lithium, in my view. Yes. And manganese, where you have and manganese and, Exactly. And manganese. So... Yeah, so these are two interesting deals. They speak to the politics of the moment. Let's take a quick little wrap now and just kind of close our discussion with some of the things that both of our editors are looking forward to next week and the weeks ahead. Kobus, you're working on a number of research projects right now, some related to security, uh, others in in the political realm. Tell us a little bit about what you're looking forward to in the next week or two. You know, kind of, I'm, I'm firstly looking forward to to this kind of unveiling of the of the the U.S. Africa policy. I think it'll be very interesting um, and very interesting moment. You know, kind of in in the relation, um, and then I'm I'm also I'm, I'm focusing a lot at the moment on on the different kind of security issues that that Chinese are facing in Africa, but also how that then slots into the global security initiative. Um, and the this so very few people people have haven't really been paying a lot of attention, but Xi Jinping announced what's called the Global Development Initiative and Global Security Initiative, these two kind of big, quite vague, like nebulous kind of concepts a while ago. And since then, um, you know, we've seen a lot more kind of writing about this coming out of out of different kind of official sides of China. 
Um, and it seems to be kind of like heading towards kind of a, 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 a new conception of the Belt and Road, even as the Belt and Road itself is kind of being rethought, I think, in China in relation to economic, new economic realities there. So, you know, kind of, so a lot of it is still very kind of undefined, but it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like a lot of, a lot of the reading I'm doing at the moment is trying to kind of, you know, kind of find out exactly what they mean by, by concepts like indivisible security, for example, you know, kind of, an, and um, which some of it is old stuff in old thinking in, in China. Some of it has been taken over from Russia. A lot of it is kind of, is, is, is you know, kind of is, is putting out these kind of like these talking points that you, as the Chinese do frequently, they put out these talking points and then some of them actually turn into real things, you know, kind of a year or two down the line. So, so it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's something that I'm, that I'm tracking at the moment is very interesting for me. Well, let's give you a little bit of a preview for what we've got on the schedule for the podcast. So uh, coming up next week, we're going to be talking with uh, Emmanuel Matambo, a professor in South Africa who's Zambian, about the landmark Zambian debt restructuring deal that's absolutely fascinating. China co-chaired the committee uh, to do that. And this really speaks to how, again, tone deaf Linda Thomas-Greenfield's comments were because we literally had the biggest breakthrough in Chinese debt restructuring in Africa the same week that she issued her comment on the debt trap. We also are going to be talking to the CEO of Afrobarometer about uh, public opinion of the U.S. and China in Africa. That should be very interesting. We've been trying to get Afrobarometer on the show for a year now, and it finally is happening. So that's very exciting. And then I am looking forward to a conversation that we're going to have with Ali Ween from the Eurasia Group in Washington about his new book, America's Great Power Opportunity. Uh, so we have some amazing shows for you scheduled coming up in the next few weeks. I also want to bring your attention, especially if you speak French, well, only if you speak French, to an amazing show that Giraud did on Chinese media in Africa. Why don't you tell everybody about your latest episode of the Afrique Chine podcast and some of the stories that you're working on, Giraud? Oh, no, the latest uh, Afrique Chine podcast was really interesting. We had this great conversation with Selma Miubi, who's, uh, who's a researcher in Sorbonne University at Paris. We tried to understand the Chinese media presence in Africa, how, they are, how they're evolving, the relationship with, um, with local media, how they're perceived by local communities. And especially, we kind of went to this geopolitical political conversation trying to understand how Chinese state media are really different. Are they really different with French media per se, France 24, RFI? Are they really different? We really talked about it. And I guess that some people might be upset. Oh, you're you're going to hurt my relationship with my <laughs> former colleagues in Paris at France 24. They might you're be a, really going to cause me some problems. They might be a, a, a bit upset about it. But yes, it's factual discussion. It's really factual exchange. It was really interesting. And I'm inviting you guys if you really if you speak French, come and listen to the show. It was really a great show. So for me, I'm gonna be for the next week. I'm gonna be looking at uh, this Simandou deal, the way uh, things have been progressing with the Guinean government, with the agreement they found with um, Rio Tinto and the uh, winning uh, WCS, the the win the backed and Chinese consortium. So that so that's back on again. Remember, it was off yes, again, on again, off again, and it's on again. <laughs> exactly, now, right? it's on again. So okay. we're gonna see now. They say they're gonna create a joint venture. So I'm gonna be. 
following up on that what's going to happen if they're really now really going to you know put the put the money where the mouth is we, we don't know yet so we're going to I'm going to be following up on that I'm also going to follow follow up on blink and visit in DRC to see if finally beyond the curtain they're going to be talking about China because I do believe that blink and been there and if Linda Greensfield's going to be with him too I do believe that it's certain extend beyond certain curtain as Kobe's mentioned they're gonna be speaking about China and how it's gonna play out so basically those are the big stories I'm gonna be following up and for the rest just keep in keep uh, keep in touch and if you are a French speaker you want to receive the newsletter come to the website projetafriction.com and just write put in your e your email address you're gonna be receiving the e the newsletter twice a week every Tuesday and Friday and yes that's it so Jero's newsletter that he puts out is free and you just need to go to the website projetafriction.com if you want the link to that it's in the show notes the email address field is at the top of the page it's a fantastic newsletter uh, we are also about a week away maybe two uh, to launch our new Arabic newsletter as well so if you speak Arabic, you can already put your email address in to get into our database and you'll start to receive that shortly as well. And if you want to receive the work that the whole team is doing, we're now a team of eight, everybody from Africa, the Middle East and China who are creating this amazing daily brief that is unique and nothing else is out there like it. All these stories that we've covered today are out there. Nobody else in the media is covering them in the depth that we're doing and connecting dots between and among regions around the world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions are very affordable, $7 a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everybody else. We have institutional subscriptions as well. And we're just so thankful to all of our subscribers who support the work of Global South journalists and the work that we're doing every single day. Also, big thank you to our Patreon supporters, Jero, Kobus, You've fallen a little bit negligent in keeping up with them. So we're going to put a little more pressure on, on Giro and Kobus to support our Patreon community a little bit more. Everybody in our Patreon community gets our weekly digest on Fridays. Plus, uh, we do briefings for uh, our, our certain tiers of our, our supporters. So if you would like to become a part of this community, you can go to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. And for the $20 a month option, you get some swag, a China Africa project podcast and for $20 a month and if you're a $20 a month supporter you will get some swag a China in Africa podcast mug and we've been sending out these mugs all over the world so very very cool let's leave the conversation there I apologize for going over an hour just by a few minutes we will be back again next week again for some wonderful shows in the coming weeks until then, for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, for Giro Nima, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for joining us. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrikechine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic.